Before we get started, I want to remind you about Greeny. Mike Greenberg brings his unmatched depth of sports knowledge, fun, and entertainment to ESPN Radio weekdays from 10 a.m. to noon Eastern time, or listen to the podcast of the show wherever you find your podcasts. Also, fight fans. If you want the best UFC experience, you need ESPN+. Plus. With every pay-per-view event, live fight nights, exclusive originals, and an extensive archive, ESPN Plus delivers. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, my name is Chris Mosier. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And my dilemma is that I still cannot stop eating cereal for dinner. Christopher, whatever your middle name is, Mosier. I fixed this dilemma last time you were on. I told you, first, you're very fit, so clearly the carbs and sugar aren't a problem. Two, maybe think about the meal needs and desires of your wife, who might want to sit down to a meal that isn't Lucky Charms. And three, most importantly, I told you not to stress about eating cereal as an adult. Being an adult means doing what you want, and yet here you are, still stressing. Which means, deep down, you're simply not okay with your cereal consumption and the boxes of cereal stacked up around your kitchen. So if it's still bothering you years later, I, I mean, I want to recommend something. Plan your meals for the week on Sunday. Get a meal delivery service. Cook in advance so you feel bad wasting them and choosing cereal instead. But in the end, man, if it comes down to a matter of taste, just stop beating yourself up about it. Embrace the charms. Taste the rainbow, Chris. Just let it happen. That's what she said. My name is Ann Lieberman. I use they, them pronouns. And my dilemma is I haven't gotten to punch or kick people in the face or the head in a very long time due to COVID. Now, Ann, listen, I don't advocate for violence. And while I'm fairly certain you're talking about the inability to participate in Muay Thai, I'm not going to make you specify which faces you're talking about wanting to kick. I'd humbly suggest some of the folks drawing up bills that we're going to talk about in this episode and that they might have earned a swift foot to the face. But again, I never advocate for violence. I do, however, recommend a life-size body pillow with the face of your current biggest enemy. You know, just get some of that energy out. Might be good. That's what she said. Welcome to the fifth and final pod of March and Women's History Month. I've talked to an OG sports reporter, a newbie commissioner, a brilliant chef, a wise yogi, and now a duo that I absolutely guarantee will teach you something. Anna Twist, our first male guest of the month. I made an exception for the exceptional Chris Mosier, one of my faves and an expert on transgender athletes and the issues around trans participation in sports. He joins Ann Lieberman, and they're going to help me discuss one of the hottest and most misunderstood topics in sports, helping us navigate the stuff that gets in the way of meaningful debate and progress and what has motivated the recent slew of proposed state bills trying to regulate gender participation in sports. A couple quick things before we start. Sex. So when babies are born, they're usually assigned to be either female or male based on whether they have a penis or vagina. It's often called the sex assigned at birth. It's usually on your birth certificate. Some people say this is biological sex, but it doesn't really capture the complex nature of how our bodies work. We have internal sex organs, external sex organs, genes, chromosomes, hormones, etc. 
There are people born with intersex variations that have variations in the sex characteristics and don't fit the stereotypical medical definitions for male or female. So sex itself is not binary. And then gender. It's a social construct. It's an idea. It's about a personal identity and how a person feels. The term gender describes a range of characteristics relating to being male, female, non-binary, and more. Gender is also not binary. It's not black and white. Also, groups of people are not monoliths. So choices are different. Lives are different. Some trans people use hormones. Some don't. Some have surgery. Some don't. A gender identity isn't the same as a sexual identity. Trans people can be straight, gay, bisexual, asexual, whatever. People can have both a gender identity and a sexual identity, but some trans people don't identify with one or either or don't consider this part of their identity at all. All of this is to say, stay educated and evolve. Loosen up the ideas you have about everything being black and white, especially as science tells us over and over again that things are not binary, that our social constructs are trying to put square pegs in round holes. Be open to learning from others and changing your mind and evolving as long as love and acceptance and fairness are leading the way on your journey. It's a very meaty topic that we get into today. Um, we tried to get to as much of it as we could. And I want to give an extra special big thanks to Esther Wang at Jezebel and Julie Kligman at Sports Illustrated for their excellent recent reporting on it, which was super helpful in helping me put together this podcast. That's what she said. Okay, let's uh, get to know my guests today. Uh, I had to shorten their bios. They're both very impressive. Anne Lieberman, who uses they, them pronouns, is the Director of Policy and Programs for Athlete Ally, has over a decade of experience in advancing LGBTQI plus rights and gender equity globally, including leading grant-making and advocacy efforts in South and Southeast Asia for American Jewish World Service, and two years in Thailand on a Fulbright Fellowship conducting research on gender and sexuality in Muay Thai. Previously, Anne worked as a researcher for the Bronx African American History Project and was awarded a Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture Fellowship. Anne holds an MA from Columbia University in Human Rights and a BA in African and African American Studies and Women's Studies from Fordham University. Anne is a three-time national champion Muay Thai fighter and coach and heads USA Muay Thai's Gender Equality Commission. Chris Mosier is the first transgender athlete to qualify for the Olympic trials in the gender they identify. Chris is a trailblazing Hall of Fame triathlete, an All-American duathlete, and a six-time member of Team USA. In 2015, he became the first known transgender man to represent the United States in international competition and was the catalyst for change for the International Olympic Committee policy on transgender athletes. Also a two-time national champion and the first transgender athlete to compete in the Olympic trials in any sport in a category different than their sex assigned at birth. He's the first transgender athlete to represent the U.S. in international competition, the first transgender athlete in the ESPN body issue, and the first transgender athlete sponsored by Nike. You guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. I imagine that you will learn quite a lot, and I hope you take some of it and go have conversations with other people and continue educating yourself in them. That's what she said. So uh, those of you who listen to the pod know that I've had the great Chris Mosier on before, but so excited to add Anne Lieberman to the mix. And those bios uh, just took half the podcast. So I think you know that we're speaking to some uh, extremely impressive people. And I want to start off by saying to both of you, I am still learning with all of this. So please correct me at any moment if I get anything wrong or if you can add context or insight that adds to a question or a commentary that I seem to be missing. It's all moving very rapidly, which is part of the great reason I wanted to have you on. I think this is and I've been saying for years now, so maybe not that rapidly, but I've been saying for years, this is the great next big 
discussion in the sports world. And that's why I in part wanted to have you both on to offer your insight. Um, Chris, because you've been on before, people can go back and listen to your story of teaching adults karate as a 10-year-old and being a college mascot and how you got into running in triathlons. Uh, but for those who haven't heard before, just a very quick, um, if you could just offer up that sort of pivot point moment for you, realizing that you wanted to transition and how life has changed from the first couple of years post-transition to now. And I know that's a lot to squeeze in, but just a little context for people so they know who's speaking and from what position. Sure. I didn't understand that I was trans until after college. And so I had played youth sports in girls and women's categories all the way up through the age of about 25. And I came back into sports after college, wanting to reconnect with myself and my body and my sports community that I missed so dearly after not playing college sports. And I understood my identity sort of through that process of playing sports and recognizing that it was becoming more and more uncomfortable for me, or I guess less comfortable each time to show up and to be competing as a woman. And so it wasn't that there's anything wrong with competing as a woman. It was just that I didn't identify as a woman. And I started to understand that. So I transitioned uh, after understanding my identity, waited a year and a half before I actually transitioned because I was terrified I'd lose my ability to participate in sports. And then transitioned medically in 2010 when I started competing in the men's category. And then the sort of pivot point to, you know, in the first couple of years is understanding that my process was extremely difficult because I was trying to, uh, I was looking for a reflection of myself in sports. I was looking for policies in sports and not seeing them. And so in 2013, I created transathlete.com, which is a web resource of various levels of play, sports policies, anything around transgender athletes. And I wanted to make it easier for trans athletes to navigate athletics and know what was expected of them and what, what the policies were. But I also wanted to make it easier for coaches and administrators and leagues and teams to create spaces where trans athletes would be included and welcomed with open arms and accepted as part of the sporting community. And you have a lovely story of meeting your wife uh, years before you transitioned and her actually being the one to sort of say, all right, let's just do this. Like, I love you as a person. This is probably what you want and this is what's right. And so let's let's do this together, um, which is such a wonderful and comfortable way to to take on something that that's that's obviously challenging and has a lot of fears and questions around it. Um, and trans athlete um, as, an a as a website and as an asset is massive because to your point, there's such a fear of just being unable to compete or be a part of things and not know what the policies are or what you might be getting yourself into. Um, and normally, if this were just a one-off pod, I would dig a ton into your childhood. I would go, Oprah, Anya, I might try to make you cry, you know, get into all the details of all that stuff. But um, your super interesting life and work that I detailed in the bio is lengthy and I want to get to the big issue of the pod. So let's just, if you can, give us a quick look at who you are, how you came to get into Muay Thai and doing the work you do. Absolutely. And uh, Chris will tell you, I, uh, I cry pretty easily. So it's been a, it's been a tough legislative session. So no worries about that one. Um, so I, like Chris, am a lifelong athlete and I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the nineties. And I absolutely worship women's sports, worship the 1999 women's national team and was a young, very awkward, very queer kid, didn't really fit it anywhere. And sports was the only place that I felt like I had a break from the constant bullying or feeling like an outsider. And even though I played team sports 
and I play them very, very badly. And I'm not even being self-deprecating. I was <laughs> terrible. Um, any of my my middle school and high school teammates will tell you that also. Uh, it really was just such a reprieve for me. Um, and then, you know, I got into Muay Thai later in life after college and, and went to Thailand and did a Fulbright about gender and sexuality in Muay Thai and really started to dig deep into how gender impacts people's access to sports spaces. Uh, and then was very, very lucky in 2017 to land this job at Athlete Ally, which is just a phenomenal role where as the director of policy and programs, I get to really do this work on shifting sport policy every day. And Athlete Ally, just more broadly speaking, works to end homophobia, transphobia, and sexism in sport. And we do that through education, policy advocacy, research, and athlete activism. So a lot of the work that we've been doing in the past three years and definitely the past two years, and Chris has been a part of that too, is to do trainings on trans inclusion and sport and really try to make sure that the policies that govern sport actually represent the the diversity of people playing sport. And presumably, and would be better if they were actually made by people who were informed and educated, which doesn't seem to be the case thus far, which we will get into. And I love the origin story of Athlete Ally being a, a wrestler who's also a thespian who looks at the different ways that um, that uh, homosexuality and gender identity and all those issues are, were treated in both of his worlds and thought to himself, huh, this is interesting. Let me see if I can bring some of one to the other and what happens and and how that became Athlete Ally. That's so cool. Was there a pivot point moment for you in terms of identity and choosing your pronouns? Yeah, actually, you know, for me, a lot of it was around leaving a really toxic martial arts space and finally feeling like I had the space to be a non-binary person in all aspects of my life. And I've been really, really fortunate to just have incredible people around me to support me both personally and professionally in this journey. I think, you know, I don't want to speak for Chris, but I think that one of the things that is very different about what's happening now with young kids versus what I think Chris and I have gone through is that we just didn't have the access to information, to language, to understand and explore our identities. And so for me specifically, it took a long time for me to see other non-binary people, other non-binary athletes. And even, you know, as a young kid, I knew I was queer. I knew my gender didn't really quite fit where it was supposed to, but I didn't have language or role models that I could look up to that that made sense to me in any way. Yeah, it's so important. We always say if you can see it, you can be it. But I also think if you can name it, it gives some real heft to something for there to be an official language around it that you can connect to. And I always love uh, Chris's motto of uh, be who you needed when you were younger. It's so important. Um, okay, let's, let's get into the meat of the shit. Um, from your website, Chris, transathlete.com, there's a whole lot of info on the state policies for K-12, for junior high, high schoolers and, and schools. And states vary from having very friendly policies that facilitate inclusion for trans, non-binary and gender non-conforming students. Some of them require medical, quote unquote, proof or invasive disclosures uh, to guide whether someone can be included. Uh, there are a bunch of states that have no guidance and they allow schools to create policies or rely on a single person to make decisions in certain cases. And then there are many states that have discriminatory policies that create barriers for trans non-binary GNC students to compete. Um, in the NCAA and the IOC, trans 
trans men are welcome to compete on the men's team no matter what. In the NCAA, trans women can compete on the women's team after a year of hormone suppression treatment. And in the Olympics, they're required to keep their testosterone levels below 10 nanomoles. I think I said that right, per liter of blood for a year, which is an arbitrary line that they've drawn to decide whether someone is a gender, which is a construct anyway. And now they use that to decide whether someone is able to compete. Let's start there, Chris, before we even get into recent legislature. Do any of those places, states, groups have the best model and why? That's a great question. So the states with the most inclusive models are the best models for young people. We know that young people receive so many benefits from participation in sports and participating with their peers. I know that's Anne's story. That's my story. And it's the story of so many young cisgender and transgender youth. So the states that have the inclusive policies that allow a student athlete to say who they are and then to participate in that category are the ones that I think are the most effective in terms of inclusion. Uh, there's one state in the country that actually mentions non-binary folks, and that would be the the top notch. And you know, it's important to say in this in these conversations, you know, trans athletes are are being named, but non-binary athletes are also being very much impacted by the the legislation and the policies, and maybe even more so because they are not named specifically, and it it can cause an even greater question of where those folks can participate and are able to you know, fully show up as themselves. So it's a patchwork of policies right now. And as you mentioned, you know, some states have no guidance whatsoever. Some have very good guidance. But what we're seeing at this moment in time in this legislative session is that it doesn't matter how good or bad a state's current policy is, uh, lawmakers are attacking across the board. And the lawmakers who are bringing up these bills, which we'll get into the details shortly, are not really affiliated with sport. So the current landscape of K through 12 sports, and when we say that, we're really meaning high school sports because it's much more difficult to track middle school. But some of these bills actually name middle school and even elementary school students within them, um, which is mind-blowing to think about banning a second grader from participating in sports with their friends. But the way it's always been has been high school state athletic associations create the rules and the policies for the participation of athletes in their states, which is why we have the patchwork of policies. And, you know, it really depends on where a student athlete lives as to whether or not they'll have a good experience. Lawmakers have never been a part of this until, you know, at least not successfully until last year when Idaho created a law that would ban student athletes from participating. And, you know, it's interesting. I had focused mostly on transgender students, but the idea of of non-binary perhaps is somehow even stickier because in terms of trans, presumably someone will compete in line with their identity and they will be clear about their identity and then therefore want to compete there. As a non-binary person, how would you imagine that they're selecting where they want to compete and does it make it more complicated uh, to not have that very clear idea of, of which side, I guess, to be in. It definitely makes it more complicated and also makes it more complicated because non-binary people, just like trans folks, are not a monolith. So how non-binary people want to participate on sports teams can differ, of course, 
by person, by sport, by so many different factors. And we've seen, you know, in the running community, for example, there have been some really interesting ways that big races have have made non-binary categories because those runners want those categories. But that is very different than forcing an athlete to participate in a third category, which we've seen quite a bit in this conversation around trans athletes. So really, you know, because sport is constructed within a binary that always raises questions about where trans people fit, where non-binary people fit. And we just haven't had enough conversations in the sports space, in the policy space about non-binary people because we're still hyper-focused on trans athletes and these myths around around trans athletes and, and inclusion in sport. Let's look at this recent legislature. And you mentioned Idaho, but this year now Mississippi becoming the first to pass legislation banning transgender girls from sports um, with the absurdly named Mississippi Fairness Act. Um, And that requires any public school and university that's a member of the Mississippi High School Activities Association and the NCAA, among other associations, uh, to designate their athletic teams as male, female, or co-ed and to restrict transgender girls from joining girls and women's teams. Um, It's one of more than 25, as you mentioned, Chris. It's happening sort of countrywide. Um, And as I read, um, as is the case with the majority of these bills, the sponsor could not cite any examples of transgender girls competing on girls' teams within the state. So let's start there. Um, And you mentioned it has not been until recently that there's been a great deal of interest on the political side of diving into this. In fact, it feels like it's mainly that um, they tried to fight conservatives, particularly Christian conservatives, tried to fight marriage equality. They lost. So then they pivoted to bathroom bills. They lost. So now they're taking on sports and trans participation and trans health as the latest frontier to try to basically use it as a cudgel for political gains without actually understanding the issue. Is that fair in in, in saying why you think there's this, this sudden surge in bills? So in 2015 in South Dakota, the South Dakota High School Athletic Association passed an inclusive policy that allowed trans athletes to compete in the appropriate gender category. And the legislature was very unhappy with that and tried to pass what we now would call an anti-trans athlete ban. And when that ban died in session, we then saw a bathroom bill be drawn up. And so in South Dakota, we saw one of the first bathroom bills in the country. And as you mentioned, Sarah, then they swept the nation. And so we're now making a return to 2015 and and this different political strategy. But we've also seen since 2017 a rise in women's, and I'm putting that in quotes, air quotes, organizations that say they are protecting women's sports when in fact have a number of other agendas that include the dehumanization of trans folks. And so There's a lot of influence from a UK-based organization called Fair Play for Women that has come across the pond that has influenced a number of of key advocates in the anti-trans space. And so that's really where we've seen a lot of this, this rhetoric come from. And then organizations like Save Women's Sports 
and partnering with the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a, a known anti-LGBTQ plus hate group. So all of these, all of this rhetoric is is swirling together to make what we see happening in state legislatures across the country. And then a lot of these bills, the text of them, some of it is just copy and paste. And so we've seen that sweeping the country. And I thought last legislative session was bad. We had 19 states introduced bills and now we're at 30, over 60 bills specifically focused on anti-trans athlete bans, and then close to 115 overall anti-trans bans. Many of those are medical care bans, so denying life-saving health care to trans youth. And then when we when we zoom out even more and look at the, the context for all anti-LGBTQ plus bills, we're looking at over 260 bills. And so this is, without exaggeration, one of the worst legislative sessions we've seen in recent years. And quite frankly, it is terrifying. So there's different methods by which uh, these states, including Idaho and Mississippi, specify that you can provide proof of eligibility. In Idaho, it's based on the, quote, internal and external reproductive anatomy, chromosomes and testosterone levels, um, which, you know, basically is to say um, we're only singling out women's sports for this type of scrutiny of anatomy and this type of, type of reg regulation, which you would imagine would go against Title IX. It is a form of sex discrimination if it's only the women and girls that are being subjected to that. And then in Mississippi, um, it indicates that you could confirm by getting a genetics test, uh, confirming your chromosomes, a test showing where your natural hormones fall, a genital exam by a doctor. Um, the idea of being a young person and having somebody tell you based on looking or testing you whether you are enough, too little, too much of anything is so heartbreaking to me to think about, especially, Chris, we've talked about this the last time. People are always calling me, sir. <laughs> I have a low voice. I'm very tall. I don't look cute a lot when I go out. I'm just not trying, especially now. It's fucking COVID, okay? Um, and I'm a very confident person, and I'm still like, it's, I'm a lady. <laughs> you know, it still hurts. Um, so to be a kid, and when I was a kid, I mean, I was already this tall when I was a kid. So it was very hurtful to me, especially when I was young and deeply insecure to feel mannish in any way, because that wasn't who I saw myself to be. So if you can speak to why it's not as simple as just saying, well, just take a test and we'll figure it out from there. Yeah, you're absolutely right that this puts the responsibility on, you know, really singling out women and girls in sports and all women and girls in sports suffer from these sort of rules, these sort of uh, bills and, and now these sort of laws. We don't make men prove their maleness or manliness to participate in men's sports. This is not a, something that we're making boys do. And so, you know, true to my experience when I was a young athlete, you know, as playing girls and women's sports, that I had a good jump shot. I played aggressively. And regardless of what I looked like standing next to my peers, same uniform, same general appearance, people would target me and say, are you a man or a woman? Are you a guy or girl? You No way you could be a girl because you play like this. And, and this is the story of so many young, powerful, strong female athletes. So the fact that we put a limit or a ceiling on just how good a girl can be in sports before she's no longer a girl is incredibly problematic. And and we know that there are so many very real issues in women's sports. And we could we could go off about the basketball tournament right mm -hmm. now and so many, so many other things. But when we're talking about this, the, the 
for the the reality for people who are in sports is that having a transgender teammate is not you know does not rank in the top 10 or 20 uh, of problems in women's sports it is unduly f- targeting you know women and girls and there's a long history of of sex testing and, g- and gender verification in women's sports that we have clearly not overcome and the fact of the matter is that these rules uh, specifically target at a greater rate young black and brown women and so there's a, a, a race, a racial component that is entered in here, as well as you know just the incredible sexism and misogyny that is inherent, apparently, in the fabric of sport. Well, and Castro Semenya is a great example of someone who is a woman, competes with women, but got so good and looks a certain way, and so then is subjected to the idea of we're actually going to tell you you're not who you identify as, which goes against everything that they're saying in terms of why they care about this and everything else. It's like it's not even an anti, it's not even anti-trans then so much as it is an idea of what femininity and being a woman is, and if you don't fit the gender model of the construct that's created from the first place before people really understood it's not nearly as binary as they all imagined scientifically. If you don't fit into that idea, which is now incredibly antiquated, then we get to decide for you, which again, especially for someone like Castor, has been horrifically disruptive and difficult to deal with. Um, yeah, so I can't imagine as a as a child having to undergo that. And and to your point, to many people's points, it is only girls and women who are then affected by this. Um, a six-year-old having to get a genital examination or some sort of chromosomal testing Um and there's a an intersex advocate, Pigeon Pagonis, who said, if you subject a seven or eight or nine-year-old and you tell them that they have reproductive anatomy that doesn't check either box, that's essentially abuse, right? Because um, you're not allowing them the time even to figure out their identity and where they fit. You're selecting it for them based on these parameters that may be incredibly antiquated. The North Dakota bill uh, is is one of several that would prevent trans boys and men, in addition to trans girls and women, from competing in the division that matches their identity. Um, so that it doesn't even, quote unquote, protect girls and women. It's more just exclusion, not even about fairness then, right? Absolutely. And that's the issue with all of these bills is that we're not even addressing, like Chris said, the very real documented threats to women's sports. We're not talking about Title IX compliance. We're not talking about pay equity. We're not talking about sexual assault and harassment that young female athletes face. We're not talking about actually any of the issues that those of us who've been watching women's sports and investing in women's sports for decades actually know to be the true issues. And so part of what happens in these conversations, which is really unfortunate, is that the folks who are fighting for trans inclusion in sport somehow get pigeonholed or or put into this place where we are being told that, oh, we want to end women's sports or all of these really intense accusations. women's sports as we know it, I believe, is what they're saying. Exactly, which is they care you know, so much about it and have for so long. Ex- exactly, exactly. And so also, these are exactly the same arguments that were used in the 70s to keep Renee Richards from competing. Like it were 30 years later. And oh, my God, can you believe that the mythical trans takeover has yet to right. happen? Right. Renee Literally Richards, the exact same uh, arguments. Renee Richards, a transgender tennis player who was uh, predicted to be the beginning of the end and have, have not been any that followed. Uh, also, by the way, we also used to be protected from ourselves. 
we weren't allowed to ride horses or run marathons or do any number of things also in the name of our own protection. Um, now it's we've gotten past that and we have new and different ways to act like we need to be protected. Um, also very interesting. I remember thinking often during the bathroom bill arguments that were hysterical and not at all rooted in fact, the idea that the very same people who do not give a shit about sexual assault in any other capacity and are legislating and working to lessen the laws at schools and universities that protect people from those things were really interested in it when they claimed that a bunch of men were going to throw on a dress and go into a bathroom. It's so hypocritical and transparent that it makes me beyond furious, but also is almost comical in the ways that nothing actually ends up having to line up for these arguments. It's introduced in any given moment to try to sway hysteria. Exactly. And it also doesn't connect with the reality of how challenging it is and often violent to be a trans or non-binary person in the U.S. right now. No kid in middle school or high school is going to pretend to be trans just to gain athletic advantage. Right. You know, especially you know, in girls Knight. sports, the prestige, yeah. the money, exactly. the fame. Exactly. You, you, you get to be a winner in women's sports. Congratulations. You get a full-time job and a bunch of people that shit on you. Exactly. Exactly. And you're, and you're not going to make the money and have to work for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, it's wild. So that seems worth it for sure. Definitely. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, you got to learn today. I didn't ask them a word this week. Uh, we had so much to get to that I skipped it, but I did want to offer up my own word, which I thought was apropos. And it's from our Twitter Brit, Susie Dent, that we love so much. And it's ipsodexitism, an unsupported, unfounded, dogmatic assertion. Dogmatic, of course, being inclined to lay down principles as incontrovertibly true. It originated in the 1590s, literally ipsa dexit, the Latin for he said it. Um, it was a translation of Greek, a phrase used by the disciples of Pythagoras when they quoted their master. So hence, an assertion made without proof, resting entirely on the authority of the speaker. Ipsodexitism, which is the practice of dogmatic assertion, came about in 1830. So in a sentence, the arguments of most lawmakers urging for the need for anti-trans legislature are no more than simple ipsodexitism, citing other politicians' bold claims but never providing proof of any real problems resulting from trans girls' participation. Just had to squeeze that one in. Plus, ipsodexitism? Man, sound a lot smarter if you use that in a sentence. Let's see if I can... I've started using antediluvian, a previous word from this pod, and of course, confelicity has become part of my vocabulary, but ipsodexitism can take a little more work. Now let's get back to the interview. You know, Chris, when you came on before, you talked about how in some ways you do have an, an easier path than many other trans, transgender people in that you're objectively very attractive and very easy to pass, right? I mean, I'm always talking about your thirst traps on Instagram and the abs, but also that you are a transgender male participating in sports. So the fact that you're kicking everyone's ass, not only kind of disputes the arguments that everyone makes, which are that men will always beat women. And here you are, a massive success, Team USA athlete. But then the path and the barriers to you are not nearly as great because people are okay with that. Yeah, that's absolutely been my experience in, in that when I transitioned, I basically inherited 
male privilege and mm-hmm. I am a white person. So I have white privilege and, you know, all of those factors come together when advocating both for myself and for the trans community in sport that, you know, I've seen that my experience has been very different than CC Telfer's experience as a black trans woman who is running and has faced discrimination, harassment, and even harassment from government officials online, you know, for any trans woman or girl who wants to participate in sports at even your recreational local level, they're facing greater levels of discrimination than I am just because I've inherited Mm. that male privilege um, that, you know, kind of says, and to your point, because I was assigned female at birth, you know, there's the assumption that I will not be a threat. And even if I have been successful, people will always on online find some way to dispute or, or downgrade, you know, my accomplishments and, you know, sort of write it off as it won't happen again. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I always bring this up because it made me laugh so much in a cringy way. My former ESPN colleague, Christina Carl, saying um, she felt like she really transitioned and made it when she started getting talked over and presumed to not know anything about baseball. Even as a member of the Baseball Writers of America, she's like, they really, everyone in this room really sees me as a woman now because they treat me like shit and assume I know nothing. <laughs> so I was just, oh, it's crazy how that swing happens. Um, you know, in the executive order on preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation, uh, which was signed uh, by the Biden administration on Inauguration Day, um, it, it says that any school receiving federal funding has to allow biological boys who self-identify as girls onto girls sports teams or face action from the federal government. Does this actually have any power, particularly in states that are actively working to pass these anti-trans laws? So just one quick thing about that executive order, which the thing that always makes me laugh is people were so up in arms about it. And literally all the administration said was, guess what we're going to start doing now? Following the law. (laughs) So (laughs) this is, so, you know, there was a lot of pushback when literally that is what's happening. And so are, is there a potential for consequences? Absolutely. Are we going to see those immediately? We're not sure. You know, we have this pending case in Idaho against HB 500, which we've already spoken about a little bit. And, you know, it's the case is preliminarily enjoined because it was found to be discriminatory because HB 500 was found to be discriminatory and unconstitutional. And so we can hope for similar rulings in in other states because laws, bills like HB 500 are discriminatory and unconstitutional. Um, But we're still awaiting further uh, administration guidance specifically for educational programs. But the reality is, is that trans folks are protected under Title IX and trans kids are protected under Title IX. Right. But these bills and laws are trying to sort of supersede that and hope that no one will intervene. Yes. And a lot of it, most of it is political. Right. So you mentioned earlier that there are groups of women that have spent their time defending and arguing on behalf of women's sports and the protection of women's sports, especially in favor of things like Title IX that have previously done great things for women and girls um, who are now coming together and believe themselves to be in the middle ground between what they're calling extremes. This is very high profile people, including Martina Navratilova, Nancy Hogshead-Maker, Donna DeVarona. Um, It's called the Women's Sports Policy Working Group, and they want to exempt girls and 
women's competitive sports from that recent executive order from Biden. And their solution is to limit the participation of transgender girls and women who, quote, have experienced all or part of male puberty, which is the scientific justification for separate sex sport, according to them. They want to accommodate and honor sports participation in other ways, like separate heats, additional events or divisions, or handicapping results. Um, what is your reaction to this proposal? Chris just leaned back and put his hands behind his head with his face, like, Gah. Um, Whichever one of you, I'll ask both what you feel about these people, because I was very surprised to see, not necessarily Martina's name, uh, she's been at this for a while, but some of the other women who I've thought to be very progressive on the right side of issues to be involved in this, what they believe to be a middle ground. My mic has been muted, so you couldn't hear me <laughs> sighing deeply at many points during yeah. that description. The, you know, the first thing I want to say about this is, is this has been really heartbreaking for me, for Athlete Ally, for a lot of members of the community who have looked up to these women who have found these women to be such incredible, fierce advocates, which they are. There's no denying that they've done really important things for Title IX, for women's sports, and to see them on the other side of this issue in such a damaging way that's just steeped in ideology. So it's been that piece has been really painful. And you're right, the way the their messaging around their working group has been articulated is that they are quote unquote accommodating, finding middle ground, but unfortunately they are nowhere near a middle ground and they don't represent accurate science. Don't talk about any of the data supporting the importance of sports participation for trans kids, entirely ignore evidence that policies about including trans athletes have been around for decades and again, have not led to this, this mythical takeover of trans athletes. And so there's a lot of inaccurate information period in, in their policies and their FAQ section, but also the solutions are unrealistic. We can't allow to put trans athletes in a third category in this kind of separate but equal rhetoric especially if there's also, one in the in the area and they're just racing themselves <laughs> i can't well, even imagine exactly exactly and also especially at the middle school and high school level mm. what's what's the purpose of sport for kids right. why are we trying to erase and exclude trans kids from one aspect of normal kid life that would make it so much easier for them, like it did for me, like it did for Chris, to have just a moment, to have a break, to really have access to the life-saving benefits that sports provide. I think it'd be useful to play devil's advocate as to why they might be trying to do this, because I'm trying to understand. I do feel like, and I felt like for a long time, that these women were on the right side of women's and girls issues in sport. And so to see their names shocked me. And so I tried to try to connect and understand. And Chris, I mean, I think we talked about this off the air, but the fear that there will be women and girls who lose out on scholarships or records or prestige or anything else is fair in its abstract, right? The abstract idea of there being a need in very few spaces in society to separate women and men. Sports is one of the few, 
places that we feel the need in order for there to be um, leveled playing field. Because of that, I think they presume that they're doing right by the young competitors or adult competitors. But there isn't actually very much evidence to the fact that allowing transgender girls into these activities will remove the successful women and girls that are existing and playing now, right? Yeah, that's that's right on. And I think what you brought up is a really important point about um, about the storytelling and the narratives that have been crafted around this issue. So what we're seeing right now is that a lot of the, the storytelling that's happening both through campaigns from this particular group and many others, as well as the storytelling that, that's happening from what the lawmakers have been fed, because let's be very clear about this. These are not driven by lawmakers as individuals. These are people who have been targeted by these national hate groups as carriers of this message. And when we hear these people talking about it, they can't show the receipts. They can't back up the science. They don't have the science. They don't have the athletes. They don't have examples to point to, to say that this is actually a problem. We've been talking in broad sweeping generalizations and stereotypes and myths about the trans community that have been rooted in the narrative of the way trans people have been covered in pop culture for decades, if not hundreds of years. And, you know, again, my, my like nonstop pitch is to everybody go watch Disclosure to get a little background information about how trans the trans community has been covered through media and TV shows and, and movies over the years, because it is really telling. And, and this is what we're seeing now. And it's even more at a heightened state because we live in this current state of affairs now that our current society is getting its news by Twitter and Instagram and, you know, Facebook and social media hits. We are reading headlines. We are not reading stories. We are not reading the nuance around certain topics. And for people who don't know trans people, which according to disclosure and and studies out there say 80% of Americans believe they have never met a trans person in real life. And so if all of the messages that you receive are being driven by right-leaning hate organizations that, that want to erase trans people from public view. And those messages are being carried by people that we look to as icons in the queer and women's sports community. It becomes incredibly problematic and damaging, not just for transgender youth, but for all trans people to hear these me- these messages and these myths be told about ourselves, you know, and then be retweeted as fact when, you know, again, if you dig into it, you, they don't have the receipts to back up the, right. the information that they're sharing. We'll get right back to the interview, but I have a quick aside here for our next Women's History Month shout out. And this one comes from WNBA player, activist, and first VP of the WNBPA, also friend of the show, who was on the pod last year, Laisha Clarendon, here to continue the tradition of singing the praises of my guests. Here's Laisha. Hey, it's Laisha Clarendon here of the WNBA, and I just want to give a huge shout out to Chris Mosier and Anne Lieberman for, I mean, so many things, being phenomenal in the work that you do um, and how you stand up for trans people. Chris, you are a role model for me, someone that I have been able to see in the sport um, really shine and be his full, complete self. And you've been a friend um, and a mentor in a lot of ways in this work. And, And the things that you've done with Athlete Ally and the constant fight for our lives and our rights and so many things we shouldn't have to think about that we do daily. I so appreciate your work um, and your constant commitment. You both are rock stars. It's like what we've talked about with marginalized groups 
for decades in in different shifts, right? The presentation of black people in media and entertainment and how that affected people's views of them. The presentation of women, right? Why are they always secretaries? Why can't they be the doctor? Whatever it is. Like the presentation of LGBTQ people. Like it's it's these steps to just recognition. And I love, and I'm gonna I'm gonna botch the quote, but Glennon Doyle's in her book Untamed says progress is merely being able to look at the things that we've always said and then change the way we talk about them and understand them because people themselves aren't changing our ability to accept them as they are is. This has always been the way. We just now know how to name it and accept it and engage with it and respect it because we are not so determined to set these binaries, whether that's in sexuality or identity or anything else. You know, you mentioned that the it's difficult to find the facts. A, a recent study from the Center for American Progress uh, looked at states that had had these trans inclusive policies for high school athletes for a decade. And during that time, no decrease in the percentage of girls who competed. And the states without policies actually did see a drop during the same time period. No openly transgender athlete has competed in the Olympics since the IOC enacted a policy almost 20 years ago, let alone compete and steal all the medals. Uh, There's a 2010 report from the National Center for Lesbian Rights and the Women's Sports Foundation on trans-inclusive policies and the woman who co-authored it, Pat Griffin, told Jezebel, the state policies that have been in effect for over 10 years have worked fine. The only difference is that a couple girls started winning and the right wing, quote, discovered that this was a great wedge issue. And it is true that the two trans girls in Connecticut who won some track races are the only thing that anyone can point to as proof that this is damaging. What do you say to either the idea that, well, if we if we change all the policies, uh, there'll be a lot more states like Connecticut and they'll be popping up everywhere or the idea that, well, even if it's only two athletes, they stole medals or anything else that has become hysteria around these two young girls who didn't even win everything, who weren't even always on top. And sometimes the people complaining the loudest got eighth place. So there were seven cisgender women that also beat them that they didn't complain about. You know, it's interesting because it's it's exactly to that point that we're not hearing about all of the races that trans people participate in and don't win. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's just the interest of of highlighting when athletes have all of the right pieces come together and have a good day. And we know that that's the way that it is in sports. We have mm-hmm. good days, we have bad days. And there's this really interesting idea that it would somehow be um, allowable to you know, let trans people to participate, but not actually be good at their sports. What people don't see is how people are training and the access that they have to other areas that would make them good in sports. You know, being transgender is not necessarily an inherent advantage in sports. It certainly hasn't been for any trans athlete I've mentored or worked with over the past 10 years, because the barriers that we're facing in the rest of our lives, just even to be able to take that step to participate are, you know, for many athletes, insurmountable. We see a lot of athletes who will come out after their playing career is over or come out and stop playing sports because the barriers to participation are so great. And so, you know, we're talking about such a small number of athletes who have to put in such an extra amount of time and effort and energy in order to be good at their sports because of the barriers that are in place to then say that, you know, we we aren't allowed to have the race of our lives doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. In fact, one of the young girls said she elected not to participate in college because she was like, the amount of attention I got as a high schooler, I don't know if I can go through that again. I just want to focus on other things in life 
in college because it was a lot, which is so sad. And let's keep in mind who we're talking about. We are talking about kids. I mean, we need to keep in mind the humanity of the individuals that we're talking about. And in many cases, in in most cases, I'd say, whether it's at the state high school athletic association or in state capitals where these conversations are happening right now, trans people are not in the room making, you know, as a part of the decision-making process. And so these bills historically have been made by straight, cis, and and mostly white people who have not paid attention to the actual humanity and the reality of what it means to be a trans person in the sport, and particularly to be a trans young person, you know, ages 14 to 18 years old in playing high school sports, what the purpose of that is, and what it actually means for those athletes to, to live their lives every day. Chris is a co-producer on an incredible film called Changing the Game that follows those two young women in Connecticut, an athlete in Texas, another athlete in New Hampshire, that really will tug at your heartstrings when you see this film because you will understand on a visceral level what it means to be a trans kid who just wants to play sports like every other kid. And luckily this film will be available for streaming, but I highly recommend everybody watch that film because there is no way you will walk away from that film with a dry eye or without feelings about how complex this issue is. And at the heart, like Chris has said before during this podcast, like I will say now is about real people Mm -hmm. trying to tackle these issues and just trying to live their lives. You know, I just want to highlight the fact that, you know, right now we're talking about sports, but it's so incredibly important to make the connection to what that what this is actually doing and 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 connect this to that bigger picture of as you mentioned, you know, there are hundreds nearly 200 anti-trans bills out across the country right now. And while we are talking right now specifically about young people in sports, there are these very real connections to trans people being able to access healthcare and trans people being able to get gender affirming IDs. Uh, to, you know, if I can't, if I don't have an ID that matches who I am, it makes it incredibly difficult to go to TSA, to travel, to, mm-hmm. you know, to get employment, to do so many things in our world. And so a lot of these bills are connected. It's not just exclusively targeting young people in sport, but because sport is so binary, this is a way that they feel, mm-hmm. you know, there's, and, and there's that huge amount of lack of education around trans community, trans athletes specifically, but, you know, just that general idea of what it actually means to be a trans person in this world. And so, you know, all of these things are coming together in this really terrifying, you know, nearly catastrophic way right now where I'm, I'm concerned because I have a national championship race in Alabama. And if in Alabama, I was not able to receive care from an EMT, if I got in a bike accident, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not going to be able to travel there to participate in a race and, and, you know, probably won't just out of, out of uh, taking a stance to, to boycott you right. know, horrible policies. I'm not going to give them that tourism money, but you know, this is a, a very, very scary situation. And it's not just about uh, fairness in sport. It is about so much more for the trans community. Well, and a quick aside on that, cause I do want to get back to the sports side, but what reason do they give for denying medical coverage to someone who's trans? There's no reason aside from transphobia and, and hating trans people. I they mean, don't even present you know, I think something the, as <laughs> meaningful. No, every single major medical association has stated and, and come out against these bills, against banning gender affirming care for trans youth. There are states across the country that are looking to block and limit 
young people's access to puberty blockers or to hormones or to gender affirming therapy and gender affirming surgeries. And then there are states that are actually threatening to take away healthcare, including Medicaid and insurance from all transgender people in the state. Um, there's actually no reason for that aside from trying to erase trans people from public view, from, from being able to live safe and, and happy lives in our, in our country. There's no easy way to say this or sugarcoat this, but trans kids are going to die because of these bills, because of the healthcare bills, because of the sports bills, because sports and life-saving care is just that it's life-saving. It follows the same as abortions or like being gay, right? Rejecting the truth of it doesn't make anyone stop or make it go away. It merely makes their lives more dangerous and them less likely to survive. Whatever you're presenting to them, whether that's a homemade abortion or conversion therapy that results in, in suicide, right? There's any number of ways that people have tried to push back on the realities of life instead of acknowledging them and assisting with them. Um, and the end result is, is often tragic. We talked about the science of it, and many people will keep going back to that. And the research on trans athletes is, in fact, very slim, uh, can't be neatly applied to those athletes that are undergoing puberty. Um, we can't really depend on gender verification tests or gender genetic numbers or any lines to dictate participation, as we talked about with uh, Castor Semenya. The idea that she could have 4.99 nanomoles, I'm probably not saying that right. I don't even know what that is, but it's amount of testosterone per liter. Um, and that if she had 4.99, the integrity of being a female athlete would be preserved and everything would be fair. But at 5.01, it won't. Um, they're buying into the idea that there are exactly two genders and that there is a very definitive line dividing them which is something that people have understood to be false for a long time now. We talked about this last time you were on, Chris, this incredible article from Science Magazine that I read that talked about a man who had had multiple kids and went in for a surgery and he had a womb. It was non-functioning, but he had and a woman who went in and they found all the chromosomal makeup was separate from anything that they had imagined was existing. And um, it's just not as binary as we always believed it to be. Um, when people and activists bring up actual science or the fact that none of these bills can point to transgender youth taking over or winning or like when there is absolutely no evidence, when it is all fear-based, what is the response from the people in power? The thing that makes this, this conversation so challenging is even when presented with the facts, even presented with the science, even with presented with, with the fact that trans kids are going to be a greater risk for suicide and potentially even die. People have such deeply held beliefs about what bodies assigned male at birth and what bodies assigned female at birth can and cannot do. So getting folks even open to having a conversation to think about something that's different than what they've been told or led to believe their entire lives is incredibly challenging. And so really the conversations we try to have with folks is to humanize the conversation, to talk about, is this what you would want for your kid? To talk about our experiences as athletes, to really bring it to a much more human level because the science and the facts 
often don't work because this conversation is so fear-based. Yeah, it's it's incredibly frustrating to see specifically in the last four years of, of Trump and specifically in the GOP, how much of decision making is entirely rooted in encouraging fear of the other without facts or evidence, right? Everything from there's a migrant caravan, everybody freak out. Oh, okay. Well, the election has now passed and no one needs to mention the migrant caravan that never existed, but was used to stoke fear or any number of issues of immigrant populations that are coming in to steal your jobs and kill everyone or anything that has to do with a a trans person in a bathroom. They are all rooted, not in fact or evidence or statistics, but instead in the idea that we can protect the idea of what we think America should look like by telling you to be afraid of anything that's different or new. And I think what's so scary and sad about that is how many people are willing to support that in the face of the facts. Um, One of the things you just mentioned, which is so fascinating, is this idea of if people have an idea in their head of just what men or women can accomplish, and after which it's unbelievable or wrong, that's only going to affect girls and women because people are willing to see men accomplish anything. A man could fly in the middle of a game and people would be like, wow, sports have come so far. And a woman could beat a man at something and it'd be like, well, that must have been cheating. I mean, it's it's really wild. And one of the examples that's more rooted in reality and that people often bring up in these conversations is Michael Phelps, right? So the idea that genetic variations that lead to advantages are completely awesome and super cool when a man has them. So Michael Phelps, for those who don't know, he has a disproportionately wide and long wingspan. He has double jointed ankles, so he can kick in a range that the average swimmer can't. And he produces half the lactic acid of a typical athlete. And lactic acid causes fatigue, so he can just swim for longer and faster without getting tired. Wow, that's great. How great is that, right? So we're totally on board with all the things that make Michael Phelps great. But as soon as a woman is too good, then we're going to identify testosterone as the sole producer of an athletic greatness. And we're going to limit her ability in the case of Castor Semenya to compete without being violated and disrespected. Um, And we're going to do that with kids too. Um, Can you speak to that idea of every other variation, whether it's height or weight or strength or ability to build muscle or breath capacity as being how great you were born to do this. And then as soon as it affects women and their ability to compete well or the, or testosterone, which is this big circling point for many of these arguments, suddenly the conversation changes. I love the Michael Phelps argument. And there also is an Olympic archer who has absolutely incredible vision, like 2010 vision or something. And I always like to bring him up too, because that (laughs) seriously, you know, but anyway, to your point. So testosterone is an incredibly complex hormone. And so we're not here to say that testosterone doesn't do anything, but it definitely is not the be all end all of competitive advantage. And the studies on testosterone often, or the way people use the studies on testosterone is they cherry pick the data for a particular end. And also the way the testosterone is tested is often different across studies. The studies are using smaller sample sizes. Like there's all these inconsistencies with, with the data and the way the data is being used. So I think that's also really important because it's, it's important for us as as consumers of media, as consumers of these studies to understand what makes a good, rigorous, peer-reviewed study to use in a a conversation about trans inclusion in sport and what does not. So that's the first piece I want to say. The second piece is, is that 
at the highest levels of sport, cis men and cis women have an overlap in testosterone. You will see exactly the opposite being said on the other side. But the reality is, is that testosterone does not make a good athlete. It is not the sole determining factor in competitive advantage. I mean, Chris mentioned several other factors as well, but definitely access to good coaching, nutritionists, facilities. I mean, we see all of these discrepancies. We saw them two weeks ago, last week with the NCAA tournament. So these are some things that really make fantastic athletes in addition to whatever physical condition someone's body is in. And I don't know right. Chris, if there's more you want to Your brain, add. your hard work and all that, but also worth noting, if you look at, for instance, the quality of play in the women's basketball tournament now versus 20 years ago, that is not because women were not capable of playing at a certain level. It was the lack of investment, the lack of training facilities, the lack of assets, the lack of resources, the lack of coaching, the lack of investment, all of that. So if we see these large leaps that can be taken within cisgender women, the idea that we could attribute everything to just genetic makeup is is clearly flawed. Exactly. And we see that, you know, I'm a Muay Thai fighter and coach. We have seen that so specifically in women's stand-up. So women's MMA, women's boxing, you have some athletes that are so absolutely dominant. And it's not because that quality of athlete didn't exist 10 years ago. It's because people finally realized that they could make money from, from, you know, women's UFC matches from folks like Clarissa Shields, Ronda Rousey, et cetera. But that is also, in addition to basketball, a really clear example of when you invest in women's sports and coaching and facilities, you get the quality of, of athlete that is on a similar level or even a higher level than, than those competing in the men's division. And this starts very young. I mean, I remember being a young girl playing sports and, and just seeing the way that coaches spoke to me versus how they spoke to my brother. Mm -hmm. And they told him to be aggressive, to run through first base, to, to be competitive, to not give up. And for me, it was, you know, while I was encouraged to be a good athlete and I feel very grateful that my mom was so supportive in me, you know, taking on multiple sports from coaches and from parents and generally from teammates, the expectation for young girls in sports was to go out there, have fun, you know, to, to participate, to not be too aggressive, to not be overly competitive. You know, the values that I was supposed to learn out of sport were very different than what my brother was supposed to learn out of sport. And we know that that comes directly from messages from coaches, from parents, from grandparents, from spectators and fans, from school officials. You know, all of these messages influence the way that young girls believe they can show up in sport. And, and, you know, I feel grateful that we're in this time right now that we now have women who own teams. We have, we have women who are in coaching <laughs> positions. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I can't wait to go to a game with yeah. you, um, you know, to, to, to see um, themselves in the highest levels of sports, excelling sponsorship deals, you know, all of that is so incredibly important for not only people to know that it's possible, but to have the belief in themselves that they can do it too. Yeah. 100%. Um, so we're kind of wrapping up here and I want to ask, you know, as we see the evolution of, of women's sports because of, of the way society's views of women and the places in which they're allowed to exist and thrive change, we're probably, and hopefully fingers crossed, going to see um, more people um, living their free identities and as their true selves, more trans people out in the open, more trans people being a part of society in every meaningful way. And that includes sports. While we don't right now 
have any of the problems that are being argued. And we haven't for a long time, even though trans participation has been allowed and policies have been in place that no one noticed until it became good political use. Um, is there any point at which you imagine that there would need to be regulation? Because I know, Chris, years ago at the ESPNW summit, you gave a poolside chat that was very in-depth about the levels at each part of competition that either require hormonal intervention or otherwise. Um, at some point, does there need to be any regulation or is your idea of the best and truest form at the youth and professional level to be simply inclusion? I think it's important that we that we be really specific and clear what we're talking about. You know, there have been policies in, policies in place from the IOC to national governing bodies to the NCAA to states across the country that have had policies for you know over a decade in some cases, two decades that have been working and trans people have been participating with their peers. And again, it hasn't been an issue until we had a few people who had a, a good race. And so, you know, those policies exist, but it's really important that when we're talking specifically about, you know, the state of affairs in terms of the legislative landscape right now, and these bills that are attacking and harming transgender youth, that we shouldn't be comparing what is right for adult professional athletes representing their country at the highest level of sports with your local high school and, right. you know, a 15 year old who wants to participate with their friends and just have fun after school. And so we really need to be clear that that what is right for adults, you know, is isn't definitely not the same thing that would be right for young people participating in sports. And you know, as Anne mentioned, this is an ongoing, you know, the data just is not out there. And so this is an ongoing process for states and organizations to evolve their policies as necessary. Um, but when we're talking about young people, you know, absolutely every young person should have the opportunity to participate in sports with their peers and not have to compromise who they are and who that they know that they are. It is completely unfair for us to acknowledge and accept and understand and and treat a young person as they are from 8.30 a.m. to 2 p.m., but then tell them that they're someone else after school for sports. So, you know, we need to align our values in acknowledging, understanding and supporting young people in the fullest sense of their identity. And that includes from the classroom to the lunchroom to the the court in the field. And do you agree? Is there is there any point after which you think or do you think that the current policies at, at say, the Olympic or NCAA level are are working as as is? I agree with Chris. And I think the many sport governing bodies like the NCAA, other national governing bodies in the US and also international federations are starting to have more conversations about what is a more progressive policy look like, understanding that, you know, the NCAA policy and it's really guidelines, we didn't do a deep dive into this, but essentially the NCAA policy governs NCAA championships. Every single NCAA institution is able to adopt its own trans inclusion policy that can be more progressive, less progressive than what the 2011 guidelines state. But there are continuing conversations about how do we make these policies more inclusive, but most importantly, how are we centering student athlete, athlete, health and safety and well-being? And so that, I think, safety and health and well-being has come up quite a bit when we talk about arbitrary levels of hormones that are set um, and really making sure that if we are requiring athletes to hit a certain threshold, then 
the number isn't arbitrary. And we actually have very clear right. evidence data around the policies that we're creating. And that is, I think, a piece of the conversation that is often missing. And luckily, many of these four governing bodies are really starting to talk more specifically about what do those policies look like. Yeah, it's certainly a very complicated topic, and it does get even more complicated when you take into account intersex, non-binary, transgender. Is it identity versus genetic makeup? Is it? It's all those things. And how much do those things even actually make a difference in terms of the athletic competition and who wins and loses? Because in the end, the reason that this particular place has been chosen is because it's one of the few places that we very clearly discriminate between men and women and separate them. And also because there's a winner and a loser. It's incredibly black and white to be able to say something was fair or unfair in an athletic competition differently than so many other spaces where we don't put men and boys separate from women and girls. Um, so it allows for meaningful conversation and of evolution of understanding. It also allows for very poorly intentioned and um, disingenuous people to engage in ways that either they believe are helping or don't care if they're helping uh, in order to further political ideas, which I can't imagine how frustrating it is for you guys doing the work because I'm just trying to keep up as a as an outsider trying to, trying to uh, share the education and the conversation. And you guys helped do that. I learned a ton as always. Thank you so much for coming on. And I'm going to share some of the resources uh, that you mentioned, Chris, along with some others. So hopefully people will keep learning. I am desperate for people to become educated because I think that's the space where we all get better is to talk to people and learn about the realities instead of reading the fear-mongering hysteria. Yeah, as folks are becoming more educated, you know, just want to reemphasize, please keep in mind that we are talking about real people and real people's lives are at stake here. Um, for, for sports, you know, many people think sports is an optional thing, but for so many of us, it is truly life saving, you know, to, to have a place where we feel like we can connect with our peers, where we can connect with ourselves and feel most comfortable in our own bodies. Uh, you know, and then when we pair this up with the healthcare bans that are happening out there, it is truly a very scary time to be trans or non-binary in our country. And all of the rhetoric, whether these bills pass or not, there is substantial harm that's being you know, inflicted on the trans community because of the way that our identities are being held in public debate. Uh, we have young people, we have parents of young people, we have coaches and administrators who are showing up to testify, to share their truth and what sport means to them, what gender affirming care means to them, uh, the very real positive impacts and life-saving impacts of being able to play with their friends. And we are also having you know lawmakers turn around right after that, misgender folks um, say that their identities are not real, that they're not valid. And so it is just a very scary time. Uh, we are calling on all allies. You know, once you become educated, please take action and you know speak up because this is a fight that we cannot fight alone. And the it's the trans community today, but it will be another community next. And this is a, a just a, a really a time where we need everybody to come together. The last thing I want to say on my end is I know sometimes when we have these conversations about really big, massive issues that are happening in our country, that it can feel hard to engage. We don't know where to start. We don't know if we have a place in the conversation. You absolutely do. You can start by following Chris on social media, Athlete Ally on social media. There are action items that we share regularly. And even if you don't live in these particular states, you can make phone calls. You can pass more information on to your friends. But choose one thing 
from today's conversation that you learned or that fired you up and share it with somebody and start to have these conversations because nothing changes if we don't expand our, our thinking and expand our, our circles in these conversations. I totally agree. It's so easy for so many of us to look back to even 10 years ago and ask, how did we feel about same-sex marriage? How did we feel about transgender people? How did we feel about, go back even farther, how did people feel about interracial marriage? Like, I mean, there's any number of ways that we can look at our very recent history and see how quickly we can turn over ideas of acceptance if we're just willing to educate ourselves and talk to people um, instead of, you know, judging from afar and I personally, just from engaging with so many different friends of mine that are queer or trans or non-binary uh, to, to better understand, oh, okay, I get that now. Um, and it's just that simple. It's just those conversations, but you have to care enough to, to have them. Um, so thanks you guys for having one today. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. That's what she said. Oh yeah. One more thing. So this is going to be a place for rants and raves and everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain about something. Sometimes I'll share a story that I read that I thought you should check out. Whatever's on my mind. Today, just following up on a couple of things that came up in this pod, as I said at the top, Esther Wang at Jezebel and Julie Klegman at SI have done some excellent recent reporting on these issues. So go read them. Esther's story, These Girls Just Want to Run the Right Wanted a War. Julie's story, The Next Cultural Battle, Stakes Take Aim at Trans Athletes. Go find those. Also, of course, Disclosure, as Chris mentioned, Changing the Game, um, as Anne mentioned. All this education is great in continuing conversation and uh, getting other people to jump on board and educate themselves as well. I'm so grateful to these two for coming on and helping have the conversation. You can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain, if you've got suggestions for guests, questions, dilemmas to fix. You could always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give me a review. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. That's what she said.